Thank you for listening to the podcast of Bible Baptist Church. Please visit our website at www.southbaybbc.org for more information. Every 4th of July here in America, we celebrate a very special day. July 4th is a great holiday, and a lot of people use it as an opportunity to reflect upon God's goodness to our country. Of course, it is a day when, you know, the Declaration of Independence was voted upon, and so July 4th has special meaning for us here in America. The year 1776 has special meaning here in America, right? July 4th, 1776 is a very special day that we look back upon and, and we think, you know, it was a great time and it was an exciting time. And I'm sure for George Washington and others that they did think that, you know, it was, a, it was an exciting time. But I think if you were to ask George Washington and the men that he was leading in his army towards the end of the year how they were doing, they probably would have responded not so well. Because the British, well, they came and they brought their armies. And I was reading a little bit and uh, they brought their armies. They put them on Long Island. They landed on Long Island and they pushed down the island towards uh, New York City towards Manhattan. They, they went in there. They took over the city and pushed out George Washington and the army that was there. And they, they crossed over the Hudson River and they went into New Jersey. And so they started pushing out George Washington out of New Jersey. And so here we are in the situation. Now we're heading into the winter season, November. Now we're in December. If you were to ask them in December, ask George Washington, ask some of the men of his army, how are you guys doing? They probably would have said not too good. Because New York City is a, it's an important city. Now, for us today, we would say the capital of America is, was well, Washington, D.C. But they didn't have Washington, D.C. And uh, not that they had a capital at this time, but the first capital of our country was New York City. So there's a very special importance that was placed upon the city, and they had just gotten kicked out. Not only that, they got kicked out of New Jersey as well. Now they're in Pennsylvania, across the Delaware River. It's now December. It's cold, it's snowing, ice is forming in the river, they're not well supplied, they're cold, they're not doing so well. And George Washington knew that he needed to do something, so he was going to do something bold. He was going to do something aggressive. So in the month of December, he started trying to gather together some of the troops, and, and he was going to cross the Delaware River. Now... You have to remember the day that he crossed the Delaware River. Does anybody know what day he crossed the Delaware River? He crossed the Delaware River on Christmas Day, December 25th. Now, normally on a December 25th, on Christmas Day, it's cold outside. What are you going to do? where you're going to relax, right? It's cold. The, the army, the main British army, had gone back to New York City, and they were going to winter over the next several months and then continue the campaign in the spring. Some Hessian soldiers, German soldiers that were hired, basically, for the British that were there in New Jersey, and they were there. That was the target for George Washington, and I'm sure he picked that day because he knew they would not suspect it on Christmas Day. That nobody would expect an offensive in cold northeastern uh, weather where it's snowing, there's ice, it's Christmas Day. It would have been the least likely of days to have shown up. 
And George Washington crossed the river. He had victory that day. He uh, pressed on and had some more victories in the month of January. And of course, the rest is history, in large part because an army was not expecting them to come on that day. They weren't ready. They weren't watching. Now, if you're looking here in 1 Peter chapter 4, I want you to look with me at verse number 7. It says, but the end of all things is at hand. Be therefore sober and watch unto prayer. What God wants us to do is to be ready. We as Christians need to be ready. Amen? We need to be ready for the return of Jesus Christ. We need to be ready for whatever God has for us. And it creates in us a watching kind of a spirit. You see that there in verse number 7. And watch unto prayer. Because we know that Jesus could come and we need to be ready no matter when he comes. And I want to give this proposition that when we live knowing that Jesus could come at any time, we live with better timing. Because timing is important, amen? Right? What you do is important. Of course it's important. We preach about what to do. But when you do it is also important. Amen? All right. What you do is important. When you do it is also important. When I was growing up, I, uh, I took uh, violin lessons, and I was playing the violin, and I, you know, my mom would take me to the lessons. I would practice at home, and, and uh, she put me into an orchestra. And I actually really enjoyed the orchestra. I had a lot of fun. I would play the violin, and there's all sorts of instruments. You have the violin, you have the violas, you have the cellos, you have the trumpets, you have the flutes, you have all sorts of instruments there in the orchestra. And uh, what we would do in practice, we would have sectional practice, which is the violins would get together and we would just practice our part separately. And the trumpet players, they would practice their part. Everybody would practice together and then we would have a joint practice every single week. And so we would do this. And everybody was told, you need to learn your part, practice your part, come together to the sectional practices, and you're gonna, we're going to practice our parts together, get better together and everything. We would learn all of our parts. Knowing what to play is important. And knowing when to play it is also important. Amen? Right? I, as a violin, can't play whatever I want to play whenever I want to play it. Amen? Right? I got to play it at the right time. You know how I know when the right time is? I look at the conductor. And the conductor looks to us violin players and would say, it's your time now. Play. And we would play. Right? It's not okay that we would be a measure late. It's not okay that we would be a measure early. We got to be on time. We got to have good timing, knowing what to play and when to play it is important. If you're involved with uh, any sort of situation where you need to learn CPR, maybe you work with children, maybe you teach a class, or whatever the case might be, you learn CPR. CPR is important. Knowing how to do CPR is important, right? Knowing the chest compressions, knowing the breathing, all of those things, that's very important, amen? But just as vital with CPR is not just what to do, but when to do it, amen? Right? That's important. When you do the CPR matters greatly for the survival of that individual. Knowing what to do and when to do it is 
both, they're both important. Now, if you've been coming to our church for a while, or even if you haven't been coming to our church for a while, you probably know in general what the right things are, right? Right? You know what to do, right? Does anybody, is anybody here confused about stealing, right? Is anybody here confused about whether stealing is right or wrong? Okay, if you are, I need to talk to you. We need to get that straightened out. I don't think anybody here is confused about that, amen? Right? I don't think we're confused about lying. Is lying bad? Is lying okay? I think we know that, right? I think we know that unforgiveness, we shouldn't do that, right? We should be forgiving people, amen? We all know these things. We know we ought to give. We know we ought to serve. We know we ought to read our Bibles. We know we ought to be kind. We know we know all of these things. We know what to do. But the question I want to ask you today is, how is your timing? Are you doing it in the right time? Because it's great and well if you know what to do, but if you're not doing it now, your timing's off, amen? Right? We talked about Bible reading today. You know that you have to read your Bible, but if you haven't read your Bible today, or if you're not going to read your Bible today, your timing's a little off, amen? Your timing's a little slow, right? If you know how to serve, and you have a particular gift or talent, and you know that God wants you to use that for the church, and you, you haven't been doing it because you've got some other things that you want to do, that's great that you know what to do, but your timing's off. And what God is telling us here, I believe, in verse number 7, is, Help us with our timing. But the end of all things is at hand. Be ye therefore sober and watch unto prayer. We need to be watching. We need to be ready. That's the mentality that we need to have. Benjamin Franklin is quoted as saying this. Life's tragedy is that we get old too soon and wise too late. Right? Isn't that true? Right? Even me, you know, I'm not, I'm not that old, but looking back at my 20s, man, I wish I could go back to 20-year-old me and just, you know, knock some sense into me and give some advice and tell me, hey, stop doing that and start doing this, amen? And, and I, I wish that I could go back to teenager me, even a little kid me, and, and give them some wisdom. Now I, can, now I know these things, but now it's too late. Right? I'm not in college anymore. I'm not in high school anymore. You know, I'm not, you know, single and living by myself anymore. And all things. It's, it's great that I know it, but I wouldn't have known it then. And God wants to help us with our timing. It's important that we be ready, that we not procrastinate, that we not delay, but that we have this attitude that the end of all things is at hand. Hey, the end it could be here any day now, so let's be ready. Let's be watching. So let me ask this question today. If we're going to grow, we want to grow. I'm sure you want to grow. I'm sure as a church we all want to grow. As individuals, I want everyone to ask ourselves the question, how is my timing? How's my timing? How's your spiritual timing? I see three changes and some characteristics of those who live with the right timing. First of all, I see a sharpened clarity. That's what he's mentioning here in verse number 7. But the end of all things is ahead. Be therefore sober. Be therefore sober. Have a clear mind. Have a clear vision. How do I know if I see things clearly, though? 
You know, I, uh, I recently got new glasses, and I got them th this past year. I went to the store, and you go, you, you go and you, get, you, you see the, the eye doctor, the ophthalmologist, right? And you, you know, they put you in front of this, you know, this, these levers, right? And they say one or two, right? They do this whole thing, one or two, right? Uh, I think two is better, all right? Three or four, right? You know, you've gone through this whole routine, right? And, you know, and, and, uh, and they said, I think your prescription's a little bit, you know, stronger. I think your eyes are a little bit weaker. You need a little bit stronger prescription. And I said, okay, all right. And so they gave me these test glasses, and uh, it's got the right prescription. So you put them on, and you walk outside and make sure that everything looks right. And uh, whenever I do that, my prescription gets a little bit stronger, and I go outside, and I realize, oh, I can actually read that sign now. Oh, I didn't realize, you know, and, and this whole time I thought what I was seeing was normal until I got my vision corrected, and then I realized what I was seeing was not normal, and everybody else was seeing something that I wasn't seeing, right? So every once in a while, when I feel like my vision is bad, I'll stand next to a friend of mine, sometimes I'll even, hey, you sign over there? Can you read that sign? <laughs> and uh, sometimes they read the sign, and I can't read the sign, and I think, man, is my vision getting a little bit worse? You know, how do we know, though, when our, vision, our spiritual vision gets worse? How do we know if we're not seeing things clearly? Well, using this word sober and looking at a couple of different passages, how do we know if we have clear vision? We know that we have clear vision if we're ministering. Because clear vision ministers, Romans chapter 12, verse number 3. For I say through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly according as God had dealt to every man the measure of faith. All right, so God wants us not to think highly of ourselves, but that we ought to think soberly. We ought to think humbly. And so you might look at the passage and think, what does that have to do with serving? Well, this is Romans chapter 12. Verse number 1 says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Verse number 4 of Romans chapter 12. For as we have many members in one body, and all members have not the same office. So as individuals, we ought to be serving God. And as members of a church, we ought to be serving one another and serving our Lord through the church. So Romans chapter 12 is dealing with service, and he says we need to think soberly. How do I know if I'm seeing clearly is when I know that I'm ministering. That's why serving is important. People who see clearly serve. We also know that those with clear vision, they model. Titus chapter 2, Paul, he's writing to Titus. Titus is supposed to set up some pastors in Crete, and so he's left behind to be able to strengthen some of the churches, and he's given some specific instruction. Verse number 6 says, Young men, likewise exhort. So he tells Titus, I want you to tell the young men these things. Exhort, encourage, challenge them to do these things. Young men, likewise, exhort to be sober-minded in all things, showing thyself a pattern of good works. In doctrine, showing uncorruptness, gravity, sincerity, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that he that is of the contrary part may be ashamed, having no evil thing to say of you. What, what Paul is telling Titus is you exhort the young men to be sober-minded. How do you get them to do that? You show them the model. Verse 7, in all things showing thyself 
a pattern of good works. In doctrine, showing uncorruptness, gravity, sincerity. You see all of these things. So how do we know if we're living with clear vision when our mentality is not telling other people what to do, but showing them what to do? How do we know that if we're living with clear vision, it's not just telling people what to do, but showing them what to do? Because even lost people can spot sin in a Christian, amen? Right? Even lost people know what's right. But you know what the difference is? We as Christians are called to be holy, amen? Not just to spot out unholiness, but to demonstrate holiness through the power of God. So clear vision models. It shows, it demonstrates. Lastly, we also see that clear vision wants to maximize opportunities. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 13. For whether we be beside ourselves, it is... Or whether we be sober... It is for your cause. So, Paul is writing to the Corinthian church, and uh, he's really writing about some things, some rumors, if you could put it this way, some rumors or maybe even gossip. The people are talking about Paul. All right? Gossip is dangerous. This is not a message about gossip, but gossip is very dangerous. So, but Paul is, is writing and he's addressing some things that were spoken about him. And basically what some people were saying is, Paul, you're crazy. Paul, you are doing some crazy things. Why are you, as believers there in the city of Corinth, why are you following Paul? Paul's a crazy man. And he's saying that in verse number 13, for whether we be beside ourselves, if, if we really are crazy, it is to God. We are crazy for the Lord. Or whether we be sober, it is for a cause. No matter what it is that we do and how we do it, there's a reason, and the reason is we live for God. Paul is we live this way on purpose. You know why? He addresses it earlier in the chapter, verse number 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. You know, Paul is saying, you think that I'm crazy? You think I'm crazy? Maybe I am crazy. But I'm crazy for a cause. And the cause is this. Jesus is coming again, and he's bringing rewards with him. So I want to maximize that potential understanding. Jesus will come, and he will give rewards. And I want to maximize that reward. I remember when Michael Phelps was uh, at the Olympics, and he was going for all those gold medals. You remember this? I forget which one it was, but he was trying to go for the record and get eight gold medals in a, simple, in a, in a single Olympics. And that was going to be a world record. Nobody had ever done that before. And uh, he had that goal. And there was a big, you know, everybody was talking about it. Everybody was excited about it. He's, gonna, he's like the, the, the greatest Olympian ever. And there was a lot of hype around this and a lot of articles and things like that. And I, I remember reading some of the things that he would do. I remember reading his exercise a regiment. He would wake up really early in the morning, and he would go swimming, and then he would swimming later in the day, and uh, swimming, you know, he would swim so much that he would have to consume so many calories. I remember reading something along the lines of he needed to eat 12 or 13,000 calories a day just to keep his body going, right? The recommended amount is about 2,000 or so, right? You know, 2,000, maybe 2,500 or whatever, if you're really generous, 2,000, right? But, you know, he's at 12,000. 
You know why he's at 12,000? He's using up his muscles so much that he needs to feed it with all of that. That's a crazy amount of food that feeds a crazy amount of exercise. Michael Phelps, why are you doing that? You're crazy. Nobody else is doing that. Who else is eating 13,000 calories a day and, you know, exercise as much as you do? Nobody. But you know why? He had a cause. He said, I want to win some Olympic gold medals. You know, if that means waking up early in the morning and exercising, other people, that, that might seem crazy to them, but I got a gold medal I want to win. Hey, I want a record that I want to set. Hey, I'm willing to do some things that other people might say, I would never do that. Maybe they wouldn't, but you have a cause, amen? You as a Christian, cause. you have a reward that is coming your day, and you can see clearly when you want to maximize your potential. There's a sharpened clarity that comes when we live with better timing. Secondly, what I see is that there is a serving charity that comes when we, when we see clearly when we have good timing. There is a love that comes out of those that live with good timing. First Peter chapter 4, verse number 8. And above all things, have fervent charity, have fervent love among yourselves. We have to have a fervent charity. You know, Paul is instructing us as believers to have a fervent charity. The word for fervent, we would probably use the word like passionate, right? Or zealous, you know, fervent, love, passionate, love for people. The word here literally means to extend out the hand, right? It means to extend out the hand. It, it means along the lines of to initiate. I'm going to reach out my hand and initiate that interaction. I'm going to reach out my hand and shake your hand. I'm going to reach out my hand and welcome you. I'm going to reach out my hand and, and uh, begin this relationship or whatever the case might be. And a godly kind of a love is an initiating kind of love. The love of God acted first, amen? Right, because anybody can love people who love them first, right? Right, if somebody loves me, if somebody is nice to me, it's easy for me to be nice back to them, right? If anybody is forgiving to me, it's easy for me to forgive them back. If somebody comes up to me, we had an argument or something, and somebody comes up to me and says, you know what, about that argument, you know, I'm really sorry we had that argument. I don't even know why I said some of those things. You know, if they said something like that, it's easy for me to say, yeah, I'm sorry too, right? It's much harder to be the first one and to go up and say, you know what, about that conversation, you know, I'm sorry about that conversation. I'm sorry for what I said. I'm sorry for how I said it. And, uh, you know, I hope that you'll forgive me. Right? That's a much different thing. But the love of God is an initiating kind of love. Romans chapter 5. But God commendeth or proved his love toward us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Aren't you glad that God didn't wait for you to act first because you would have never got saved? Amen? Right? We would never have gotten saved if God waited for us to act first. So you know what God did in his love? He decided that even though we were still sinners, he was going to send his son to die on the cross. Love is an initiating kind of a love. Love is also forgiving. That's what he says there in verse number 8. For charity shall cover the multitude of sins. God's love is fervent, it is initiating, and it is forgiving. And we also need to have that kind of love. You know why? Because there are a multitude of sins that need to be covered. I have a friend of mine that, uh, that I grew up with. We were very close together. And uh, I remember when he bought his home. He lives up in the Seattle area. 
and I remember when he bought his home, and a really nice home, new community, and uh, so everything was new. Everything was new. The carpet was new. The hardwood floors were new. The walls were new. The paint was new. Everything. Everything was brand new. Everything. And then they moved the furniture in. And my friend had his family and some friends help move the furniture in, which is fine and well until somebody dropped furniture on his brand new hardwood floor. And uh, I wasn't there for the move. I, was, I had uh, moved away already at the time is what I remember. And, uh, but I remember the first time that I went to his house. And I walked in. I was like, wow, this is a nice house. Wow, look at this. It's really nice, you know. Wow, look at this. Great. The house looks wonderful. I mean, nice open space, you know. It's got a couple of kids. We can enjoy that space and everything. And I was walking into the kitchen. Wow, what a nice you know, there's a there's an island there, you know, where he's got a sink and some, you know, granite, you know, and whatever. And I was like, wow, these are some really great things. And I was walking around, and, and my friend, for whatever reason, sure to point, yeah, but when we moved in, there's this dent here on the floor. And every time I walk by, I see the dent. There's a dent there, and it's right near the window. So you know when the light comes in, it reflects differently off of the dent. So you can see it every single time. I was standing right on top of it, so I didn't see it, but then I took a couple steps back, and I was like, oh, yeah, I see why you say that, because every time you walk in, you see that. You see the dent. You see the flaw. You see the dent that your friend or whoever it was brought in the furniture, dropped it on your hardwood floor, and now you remember that. We as Christians need to be forgiving because spiritually people will drop furniture on our hardwood floors. Amen? Right? There's going to be some dents in the floor. There's going to be some stains on the carpet. There's going to be some nicks in the, in the paint. There's going to be some things that happen. And we need to be willing to forgive because those kinds of things are going to happen. You're going to get some dents. You're going to get some stains. You're going to get some holes in the wall, bumps, and all of these different kinds of things. So what do you do? If you have a carpet and there's some stains on it, what do you do with that? You get a rug. You cover it, right? Right? That's what you do, right? Maybe not. But you know what? If you have a stain that you can't get out, what do you do? You're not just going to leave it there, are you? Right? What are you going to do? You're going to try to cover it up. You know, we as Christians, you know, we're going to need to do some good covering up. Because there's going to be some stains that end up on, on us. Some bumps, some dents, people rubbing into one another, saying some things, all of these things. Now, I understand it can be hard to forgive. Flesh, we don't want to forgive, do we? We want to be upset at that dent that happened the second day you walked into your house because somebody dropped furniture on your floor. You want, to, you want to be upset about that and maybe stay upset about it, but, but God wants in forgiveness. How does timing and understanding the return of Christ help us to be more forgiving? When I was in New Jersey, I met a guy who went to the church uh, that, that we were going to, and uh, he, he told me this story. This was much later after it had happened, uh, but he told me this story. 
And uh, I don't know if you remember those days when uh, everybody would line up in front of the Apple store to get the newest iPhone. Do you remember those days, right? You would see this on the news report. People would wait outside for days and just to get this brand new phone. And uh, so, you know, this, these were those days. It was like the iPhone 4 or something like that. Anyway, this guy, he had gotten the phone. He had stood in line. He had gotten the phone. And, uh, you know, there's that, that feeling of you, you peel off the plastic wrap, you open the box for the first time, and, and you behold your brand new iPhone, right? And you remember those days you wouldn't really buy the phone. You would pay like 200 or $300, and then you would get locked into a contract for two years. Do you remember that? You remember those days? And so, you know, you're, you, I remember people always talking about, when's your upgrade? When's your upgrade? You know, my, oh, I don't have an upgrade for another year. I don't have an upgrade for another six months, you know, things like that. Well, this guy, he, you know, he had doing that whole thing, signed two years, brought the phone home. He was holding the phone, you know, he walked in the door, and uh, he walked in and he said, look, I have a brand new phone, brand new iPhone. Right near the entrance is a door, and his sister walked out. The door hit his hand. The phone fell on the ground, cracked the screen, first day. Now, I know that he was still a little bit upset about it, because this was years later. Nobody was using an iPhone 4 anymore, but he was still telling this story about this iPhone 4. He walked in the very first day. You know, you're locked in for 730 days. Now he has to live with a phone with a cracked screen for 729 more days. Always thinking about his sister. Why did you walk out at that time? Why did I hold out this thing? You know, for 729 more days, I'm sure every time he looked at it, it reminded him of his sister and another reason he could complain about his sister. Amen? Now, I've been on the opposite end in terms of seeing people at the end of a two-year contract, just a few days away, maybe even a few weeks, drop their phone, crack the screen. And I see them with that phone. And they, oh, what happened to your phone? Oh, I dropped it. Oh, man, that stinks. It does stink. But you know, they're, they're like, yeah, it's not so bad. I'm like, really? It's not so bad? Yeah, I have an upgrade in just like two weeks. So you know what? In two weeks, I'm going to get a new phone. In a week, I'm going to get a new phone. Just a few, even, even a month later, I'm going to get a new phone. The fact that they knew they wouldn't have to live with that that long made it easier for them to forgive the brokenness that happened. You know what God is trying to say when he says, the end of all things is at hand? You know what he's trying to say? Your life is like a vapor. What he's trying to say is your life is short. What he's trying to say is that new contract that you're going to get is coming soon. You know, when you get to heaven, you're going to have a new body, amen? You're going to have a new home. You're going to have a new everything. And God is trying to say, hey, you, here on earth, you know, some people might say some things, some people might do some things, there might be some false, but just remember, heaven's coming soon so you can forgive, amen? Right around the corner, we can forgive. And so I think that when God tells us here in, in, in 1 Peter chapter 4 that the end of all things is at hand, so let's be loving. Let's be fervent. Let's be forgiving. It'll help us to remember, you know what? This person, they did me wrong. Just like 
Hi, sister, did him wrong, and the phone broke. Yeah, maybe it was genuine, but you know what? If you know that heaven's coming soon, you'll be like, you know what? It's okay. I'm going to get an upgrade suit, amen? Right? My home's going to get upgraded. My body's going to get upgraded. I'm going to get a new body and a new home. It's also a friendly kind of a love. Verse number nine, use hospitality one to another. We should be hospitable, loving kind of Christians. Use hospitality one to another. And by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, God had him put in these next two words. Without grudging. You know why you had to put those two words in there? Because there were some people who were using hospitality grudgingly. All right. Hey, I want, you to, I want you to be kind to this person. All right, fine. <laughs> hey, can you help out this person? Can you give this person a ride? All right, how far away does he live? You know? Uh, people were, were, have that kind of attitude in terms of hospitality. Now, the word hospitality has this idea of being a host or a guest. It also carries it with this idea of the love of strangers. The love of people that you didn't know before. Now, I want every one of you to do this little exercise, just mentally. I want you to look around the room. You can look around at one another. Okay? Look around at one another. And I want you to count the number of people that you knew before you came to this church. All right? Think of that number. All right? All right? Think of that number. How many people did you know before you came to this church, right, before you visited. You don't have to tell anybody the number. That's not important. But just have that number in your head. I'm looking at my wife over there. I knew her, right? Okay, so I know you, right? You know, just have a number, right? Everybody has a number. I'm not going to ask you for the exact number, but I want you to raise your hand if you knew before you came to this church, you knew 10 or more people. Raise your hand. Anybody who knew 10 or more people before you came to the church? All right. Did anybody know five or more people? Okay, a couple of people. Just a few people have five, all right? The rest of you, it's less than five. Some be zero, right? You know what that means? Before you came to this church or that first day that you came to this church, out of whatever, how many people, let's say there's 50 people here, out of those 50 people... 45 of them were strangers. Amen? You didn't know them. They didn't know you. They were all strangers. But as a church, we want to love one another. Amen? Amen? We ought to love all the strangers. Amen? We ought to love one another. Hey, you know what, what, what a church is all about? It's about loving strangers. Amen? Because maybe before you came to the church, you didn't know anybody. Or maybe you knew one person, somebody invited you, and so you came with that person that you met and you knew. And so you knew one person, the other 49. They were all strangers. But God wants us to love one another, amen? God wants us to get to know one another and, and be hospitable with one another and be forgiving with one another. It goes back to this fervent kind of love, an initiating kind of a love, amen? Hey, you know what? If you see somebody here in the church and you don't really know them, you know what a loving thing would be to do? To go up to them and introduce yourself. Hey, I don't think I've ever met you before. Maybe you've been to this church for months. You've never met a person before, right? 
Now, we have a, a church size where you've probably, if you've been here for just maybe one or two weeks, you've probably met a lot of people. But maybe there's somebody that you haven't met before. You don't know their name. You don't know about them. You know what a loving thing could be to do? A hospitable kind of thing is go up to them and say, hey, how are you doing today? It's good to see you here. You know, I don't know if I met you before. My name's Richard. What's your name? All right, that's great. I've noticed that you've been here. I haven't had a chance to talk to you. But I wanted to see how you're doing, get to know you a little bit, introduce myself. And, and that could be a wonderful thing to begin a loving relationship. Amen? So that's what God wants us to do as a church, to have a serving kind of a charity. Lastly, we see that there's a strengthened capacity. Verse number 10, as every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same one to another. God gives us the strength that we need to do the calling and the work that he has given to us. He says in verse number 10, as every man hath received the gift. Every one of us has a gift. If you're saved, you have a gift that God intends for you to use for spiritual things. Romans chapter 12, verse number 6, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us. God has given every believer a gift that he intends for us to use in order to serve one another. It's also a responsible uh, service that we have as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. You know the gifts that you have, you are to steward, meaning you don't own them, but you're responsible for them. All right? That's what a steward is. A steward doesn't own it, but is responsible for watching over it. Right? He's a guard or he's a, an employee making sure that it's safe, making sure that it's used properly, all of those things. Now, every one of us has a gift. Maybe you have a gift for making money. Maybe you have a gift for, uh, you know, gathering people together. Maybe you have a gift of being organized, whatever the case might be. We ought to steward those gifts well. Because we need to remember what is the purpose of those gifts, right? Why do we even have gifts? Why do you have gifts? Why do I have any gifts? Why do I, why does a believer have gifts? When I was in college, I went to uh, all of these job fairs in order to try to get an internship. You know, that was a big thing in college, try to get an internship, try to get money <laughs> at these internships, get some experience, and then also be able to maybe, you know, kind of translate that into getting a job after you graduate. So that was a big thing. They would have these job fairs, these internship fairs, these companies would come, they would set up a booth, and they'd have a representative that was there, they would talk to the students that come by, and they would take the resumes, highlight a few things, get to know what they're looking for, and all of these kinds of things, and I remember every year that I was doing this, I would submit dozens, probably over a hundred applications every single summer, try, just try to get one of these internships. And I would apply online, I'd go to these fairs, I'd print out all of these uh, resumes and hand them out to everybody, and then, uh, you know, I'd hope and pray that I would get you know, some sort of internship. I don't know, if I gave 100 out, maybe I would get five interviews. And out of those five, for the years that I did it, I got one, maybe two internships. But I remember when I got those internships, I was really excited. I was excited because that meant that that summer, I didn't have to take classes. <laughs> because I knew if I didn't get an internship, I'd have to study, and I didn't want to study anymore. So I was glad for that. 
I got paid at these internships. I was really happy about that. I got money and didn't have to study. I mean, this was the dream. And so I remember uh, going to these internships uh, my last year and the, and the second to last year. I got these internships. It was great. It was really a great time. And I uh, met a lot of people. And I, I really enjoyed it. And I went in there. And uh, the first, like, couple days is just a lot of boring work. You sit there, and they, they go through all the company things. And they talk about all the things and paperwork you need to sign, all of that kind of stuff. And uh, you get to your cube, and your manager comes by and you know talks about some things. And I remember I got a company laptop. And I remember thinking, wow, this is cool. I got a company laptop. And uh, I was carrying it around. I was like, wow, this is great. Now, why did the company give me a laptop? Now, they only really let me borrow it, right? When I left the company, they took it back. Let me keep it. But why did they even give me one in the first place? Was it so that I could do all of the things that I wanted to do? I could browse the internet, play video games. Is that why, God, is that why this company gave me a company laptop? Of course not. Why was the laptop given to me? It was given to me to do the work that I was hired to do. Amen? All right. Why did I receive this laptop? Because I have work to do. In order to get the work done, I need a laptop. So the company gave me the laptop to do the work that I was hired to do. Now, we as believers, we have work to do as well. Amen? You know what God does? He gives us company laptops to do the work that we're called to do. God gives us gifts in order to accomplish the work that we need to do. Maybe you have the gift of giving. Hey, there's a work that needs to be done. Maybe you have the gift of service. Maybe you have the gift of mercy. Whatever the case might be, we all have gifts in order to accomplish the work of God. So we need to remember the purpose and use that gift wisely because when you die, you give it back. You only have so much time where you get to use it, we need to give it back. So if we're going to grow, we need to have good timing. We need to grow in timing. How do we know for living in good timing? Or what does good timing give to us? It gives us a sharpened clarity of vision of what we need to do. If we live with better timing, we, learn, we, we, we live with a serving charity. We love one another. We forgive one another. And we also serve with this capacity, this gift that God has given to us. Let me just ask you one more time. How's your timing today? <laughs> 